Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Villarreal, and I'm a third-year law student at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. I'm excited to be hosting today's show because we're going to be talking with constitutional law scholar, prolific appellate litigator, and dean of the University of California Berkeley School of Law, Erwin Chemerinsky. Welcome to the show, Erwin. My pleasure. Great to talk with you. Great to talk with you, too. Thank you so much for coming. So, Erwin, before we get started, could you please tell us some more about yourself, where you grew up, how you got started in law, and what you're up to now in your career? I grew up in Chicago on the South Side. I grew up in a working class family. I'm the first in my family to ever go to college. Neither my parents nor brother or sister went to college. I, if you would have talked to me through college, would have told you I wanted to be a high school teacher and took all of the courses to be a certified high school social studies teacher did my student teaching at Highland Park High School in the Chicago area, and really very late in college decided I want to go to law school because I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. Mm. I think I took the LSAT on the last possible day for the next year's law school class. was a lawyer in D.C. for a time and then became a law professor and have taught at a number of different law schools. I started at DePaul in Chicago for three years, then spent 21 years on the faculty at the University of Southern California, then was at Duke as a professor for four years, was the founding dean at UC Irvine for nine years, and I'm now the dean and professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. That's amazing. That's an incredibly prestigious career path. I, I don't know. It could also show I don't hold a job very well. <laughs> so you started off as a practitioner of civil rights law, and that was your intention entering law school. At what point did you decide that you wanted to uh, also be a professor and kind of enter the academic world? When I went to law school, I always had in the back of my mind that someday I'd want to be a professor. I already knew by that point that I loved teaching more than anything else, but I had no idea how or when you become a professor. And through truly a series of coincidences, I ended up in a teaching job at DePaul Law School. I was just in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Somebody was unexpectedly going on leave, and they needed somebody to teach constitutional law. And I went home after teaching my first class in August of 1980, so almost 40 years ago, and said to my wife, this is what I want to do forever. And I still love teaching as much. I taught constitutional law yesterday. Um, I'm teaching it three days a week this semester. And I can tell you, I walk out of class each day and love it as much as I did when I started in 1980. That's fantastic. Yeah, And I know uh, through your work producing treatises that you've also helped a lot of students who even you might not have had in your own classes, uh, including me and a lot of people here at WashU Law. Thank you. Uh, I, was I hope they're helpful. Incredibly. It saved my life. <laughs> Thank you. I was wondering how you got into that work and kind of uh, the desire to produce these materials that could be published and helpful to uh, other students in other schools. One of the courses that I've taught since being a law professor is federal courts. And I realized fairly early in teaching it that there wasn't a good treatise on federal jurisdiction that fit what's covered in federal courts classes today. There's Charles Allen Wright's book on federal courts, but it's really much more about what's covered in civil procedure today. And it was a lot of, I think chutzp is the right word. Um, I thought, well, maybe I could do this. And I've been a teacher about only about six years at that point. 
And it was at least then, and to some extent now, all of the major law textbook companies have representatives go around and talk to the professors. Mm -hmm. And when the representative from what was then Little Brown, and is now Walters Kluwer, with several transitions in the interim, came through, I said, you know, there's not a federal jurisdiction treatise. Might you be interested in one? He said, I'm not involved in acquisitions. I'll put you in touch with the person who is. And um, he came through, and he said, well, write up a proposal. And so I did my federal courts treatise. Um, I would have written it in the fall, in the spring of 1988, and it came out in 1989. And then at some point, Aspen said to me, why don't you do this for constitutional law? And I had a clear vision of how it was different than other constitutional law books. And so did that. And then the same editor at Aspen said, why don't you do a constitutional law case book? And I said, there's a glut of case books on the market. There isn't a need for another constitutional law case book. She said, well, is there something you would do differently? And I said, I would want to do a case book, and nobody else would want to use it, that has no rhetorical questions for students. It has no notes. It's just as straightforward and as student-friendly as possible. She said, well, why don't you write up a few chapters, and we'll send it out and see if anybody likes it. I did the few chapters, and I stopped working on it because I was convinced nobody would want to use the book. Well, the reviews came back positive, and the book's just come out in a sixth edition. And then they came to me and said, how about a criminal procedure case book? And I did that with a dear friend, Laurie Levinson. That's fantastic. Those require such a depth of knowledge to produce a treatise or a case book in that subject area. When you're taking on the monumental task of kind of doing a survey of that field of law, how do you get started? Well, it's important that I had already been teaching for a number of years. For federal courts, I've been teaching it for eight years. By the time I did the constitutional law treatise, it was probably over 15 years. By the time I did the case book, it was over 20 years. So I don't think it's something that I would have been comfortable doing without that backdrop. Mm. It's also important to recognize it's like emptying the ocean with a teaspoon, <laughs> that it just, you do this piece and then this piece and then this piece, and ultimately the pieces will add up. The other thing about it that I found is I have a very strong vision of what I want it to be, and it makes it difficult to work with somebody else. So I was going to do the Federal Courts book with a good friend, and we were on a long cab ride, and from the time we got in the taxi, the time we got out, we realized we disagreed about everything. <laughs> I was going to do the Con Law case book with three friends, and my impulse when I'm a co-author is to want to say, sure, anything you want, but here... I had such strong feelings. And one advantage of doing those first three books by myself is for better or worse, they're my vision. And when Lori and I were going to do the case book together, we agreed as to the vision. And I write the first half on criminal procedure investigations. She does the second half on criminal procedure adjudications. So it's one book with a unified whole. Mm -hmm. But again, it's animated by a central vision. Yeah, that sounds like a really effective way of approaching such a large task. I know that a lot of professors, when they teach courses more than once have favorite parts of courses. Uh, do you have any iconic cases within constitutional law that are kind of your favorite to talk about or to teach about? I love teaching all the courses I do, and I love teaching all of the parts of the courses I do. Mm. And I teach basically in the public law area. So last year at Berkeley, I taught criminal procedure investigations in the fall and First Amendment in the spring. This year, I taught criminal procedure investigations in the fall and I'm teaching constitutional law in the spring. Next year, I'll teach federal courts in the fall and constitutional law in the spring. So those are all my 
courses. I don't have any preference among them. Hmm. I always tell the associate dean out of the schedule, here's the classes I can teach. Schedule me for what you most need. And within the courses, I don't know that I necessarily have any favorite parts. I love teaching all of the parts of the course. I guess uh, as with anybody, there may be a day like Brown versus Board of Education is a very special case to teach. Mm. Um, and they're probably in any given class could say, wow, that case is a really special case to teach. But I love teaching all the parts of the courses. Yeah, I can. Your passion for teaching and for the material uh, really shines through, even in your written work and especially you. hearing you speak. Thank you. I was wondering for our law student listeners who might be interested in careers in academia one day being a professor, what advice would you give them on either what to do in law school or how to approach their career as practitioners after graduating? There is no single path to becoming a law professor. And in so many ways, I didn't follow the right path to being a law professor. That said, it is much harder today to become a law professor than it was 40 years ago. During law school, my advice would be try to write and get published. If you can be on a law journal and get note published, that really helps. Be a research assistant to a professor if that's possible. Some of it will give you a better sense of what professors actually do, but also you'll be developing the kind of personal relationship that there'll be somebody there to mentor you and hopefully push you into the job market. Clerkships are helpful in getting teaching. They're not essential. Now, and this has changed, such a large percentage that goes into teaching either have a PhD or have done a visiting assistant professorship. The expectation now is that people have done substantial scholarship before ever being considered for teaching positions. And that's hard to do if you're going straight from practice. Definitely, definitely. And in addition to uh, teaching, you still litigate cases at the appellate level. I know we talked earlier about how you select your clients and prefer to take on civil rights cases. How does your uh, teaching inform your litigation or vice versa? How does your experience as a professor expect, uh, affect your experience as a litigator? My experience as a litigator is very useful as a teacher. Mm -hmm. The fact that I'm in court at least a couple or a few times a year gives me a sense of litigation that, that I can bring to the classroom. And, of course, the cases that I'm litigating give me a depth of understanding of that area of law mm -hmm. that I can then bring into the classroom. When I teach federal courts, I can tell my students I can teach every part of this course by illustrating with a case that I argued and lost. <laughs> and it's, it's true. I also think it gives me a certain credibility with students and alums that I am involved in litigation. I think being a professor helps me as a litigator, but it's a bit more indirect than that. I think that my style in oral argument is undoubtedly influenced by the fact that what I do professionally is teach. Um, and it's not that I'm being pedantic when I'm talking to the judges that they wouldn't go for, but I would say that my style of argument is very much influenced by my style of teaching. Excellent. I know you mentioned that you've litigated enough cases in federal courts to teach your course using examples of only cases you've lost. How do you choose which cases you're going to take when you're considering all of the possible cases you could be litigating? Before I was a dean, I did much more appellate litigation. Since becoming a dean, I'm very conscious of more limited time. So my general sense is I can handle a couple of cases on appeal a year, but I can't do more than that. And so since most of what, almost all of what I do is pro bono, there's a tremendous demand for free legal services 
I receive many, many more requests than I can possibly do. I think it's a sense of how much I care about the issue, how important the issue seems, whether this case is the right vehicle. But there's also cases, I picked argue a case in the Ninth Circuit last year because a former student of mine called and, mm. and asked me to do it. And I've taken more than one case because parents call and tell me a very moving story what the child is going through. So there's no criteria, there's no screening procedure. It's just, do I have time to handle it? And is this what I want to spend my time doing? Definitely. And you've argued seven cases in front of the Supreme Court, I, I believe. Amazing. Are there any Supreme Court cases coming up in this spring 2020 term that you're particularly looking forward to following? There's so many cases that are on the docket this term that are likely important. Looking forward isn't necessarily the words that I would choose, but in terms of, you know, just going through some of the things chronologically for this term. In October, they heard cases about whether discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity in employment violates Title VII. Sarda versus Altitude Express and Bostick versus Clayton County, Georgia, on whether sexual orientation discrimination is discrimination because of sex. In RG and GR funeral homes for Sequel Employment Opportunity Commission, whether discrimination against transgender individual is discrimination based on sex. In November, they heard the case about the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program, DACA, the Department of Homeland Security versus University of California, is whether President Trump had the authority to rescind DACA. The next day, they heard oral arguments in Comcast versus National Association of African Media, a case that I argued, and it's about the meaning of a very important civil rights statute, 42 United States Code, Section 1981. It prohibits race discrimination in contracting. It was adopted as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. In December, they heard oral arguments in New York Gun and Rifle Association versus City of New York on whether a city can prohibit having guns or largely prohibiting guns outside the home. Next week, I think on January 22nd, they're hearing oral arguments in Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue that involved a Montana law that gave tax credits for parents who send their children to private school, whether they're parochial or secular, and the Montana Supreme Court said it violated the Montana Constitution, and the Supreme Court granted review. In February, the Supreme Court's going to oral arguments in June Medical Center versus G as to whether or not a Louisiana law of course, that doctors have admitting privilege to the hospital 30 miles violates women's right to abortion. In March, the Supreme Court will roll arguments in three cases concerning subpoenas of President Trump and whether as president he has immunity from them. That's an amazing array of cases for one term. That is an impressively large docket. It seems like a lot of, to put it colloquially, lawyers are having a moment and Supreme Court cases are getting a lot more coverage, I think, in the last few years in the news and being talked about more on social media. Do you think that there's something maybe special or unique about the practice of law now in 2020 that maybe wasn't present or was different in the, the past decades? I don't think the Supreme Court is getting more attention now than it did before. I can certainly speak of the 40 years that I've been a law professor. And when the Supreme Court has high-profile cases, it gets a huge amount of attention. And when there's quieter terms, it may get less attention. Or I even think before I went to law school, the Pentagon Papers case in 1971, or United States versus Nixon in 1974, the year I was a third-year law student, the Bakke case. So I think that attention to the Supreme Court 
is dependent on what's on their docket in a particular year. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a very exciting time to be practicing law. I think that there's such remarkable technological changes, such great social changes, mm-hmm. the effects of the policies of the current administration, whether we're talking about immigration or environment or civil rights, makes this a not only exciting, but very important time to be practicing law. Definitely. What is some advice that you can give to law students who are interested in social change and how they can help as a lawyer maybe correct some of the inequalities in the world or advocate for justice in a very broad sense? It's presumptuous to give advice, and I wouldn't want to do that. What I tell my students is it's important to become involved in organizations that are working on the issues you care about, Mm -hmm. that rarely can we do things alone, and there's no need to reinvent the wheel. So if you really care about immigration issues, there are wonderful organizations. If you care about LGBT rights, there's great organizations. Get involved with those organizations, whether it's full-time or pro bono. And then what I tell my students is, I know that in many ways for progressive students, these are discouraging times. And yet we really only have two choices. We give up or we fight harder, which means there's just one choice, to fight harder and to fight better than we ever have before. Thank you. And for progressive students who might see the recent shift in the courts towards a more conservative direction uh, due to appointments by President Trump specifically, do you have advice for entering practice, especially as litigators who will be before these judges? On one level, the advice is we need to try to think of how to present arguments in a way that might appeal to conservatives, perhaps making originalist arguments, or otherwise we would have made different kinds of arguments. The other is I think that the Trump appointees are not homogeneous. Mm -hmm. Some are certainly conservative reactionary. Some are much more moderate. And so a lot comes down to analyzing who your judge is, what arguments might resonate with that or those judges. Definitely. For students who are following the Supreme Court cases and are just, or even non-law students uh, who want to know what's going on in the news with the appellate courts, do you have any advice for following these cases in a way to develop a deeper understanding of the issues? This will sound like an ad, and I don't mean it to be, <laughs> but I think SCOTUS blog is terrific in following the U.S. Supreme Court. They give you previews of the cases that have been taken. They do previews before the oral arguments. They do summaries of the arguments. And they have the decisions the day they come down. I've been teaching long enough that I remember before SCOTUS blog, but now I can't imagine doing my job without SCOTUS blog. I don't have anything comparable with regard to the Court of Appeals. I understand that there are blogs out there. I just tend not to to look at them. Great. I'll have to spend more time on SCOTUS blog. That was... <laughs> um, as I say, I have no financial or other relationship with them, so it's not for that reason, but it does sound like a commercial. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's definitely good to share resources. I highly appreciate that. I was wondering if there's anything that you would have told yourself when you started practice that you've learned since then that you maybe wish somebody had told you when you started? It's a long career And there's the opportunity to do so many different things. I agonized so much over where I should go to work right out of law school. Undoubtedly, the first job matters. 
but it's just that, a first job. Mm. And as I look back at my career, and I graduated law school in 1978, how important it was to be open to opportunities when they develop and how difficult it is to plan a career. Some of the things that had been most exciting in my career, I could have never imagined getting a chance to do. In 1997, a Los Angeles City Councilwoman, Jackie Goldberg, called me and said, Los Angeles is writing a new charter. We're electing a commission to do it. Would you run for election to the Charter Commission? My initial response was, no, I have a full-time job. I was actually president of the Academic Senate at the University of Southern California at the time. And so I said, I don't think I'm interested. And she said, well, this is like a constitution for the city. The charter in California is very much like a constitution. It creates the institutions of city government. It allocates power among the branches. It can provide more rights than the U.S. Constitution. The Los Angeles Charter had been written in 1925. It had been amended 400 times, and there was a need to do this. And to make a long story short, there was going to be an election, and one person would be elected from each of the 15 Los Angeles City Council districts. And she said, we want you to be the union's candidate. So I agreed to run. Amazingly, I got elected. And I then got chosen by my colleagues to be the chair of the commission. And it was a very intense two-year process that really was writing a constitution, and the voters approved it. And so the governing document of the city of Los Angeles is the charter. I could have never imagined that I would do that. I couldn't have imagined if you talked to me when I graduated law school that someday I'd be a law school dean, let alone that I'd be the founding dean of a law school, which was an amazing experience. So I think a lot of it is just being open to the opportunities and as I said, it's a long career and there's a chance to do so many different things. Yeah, thank you. That's a really incredible journey. What was that experience like writing the Los Angeles Charter and being able to put into practice a lot of your ideas about constitutions and how they could be structured? As I said, there were 15 members of the Charter Commission. Each was elected. Almost all of us saw this as a stepping stone for another elective office. I did not. I was not looking to run for anything else and did not ever run for anything else. But three of my colleagues became members of the city council, two became members of the California legislature. One is on the county board of supervisors now. One was in Congress. So that was a, it certainly shaped what was happening. There was no consensus on any issue. On every issue, the mayor had his views, members of the city council had theirs, the homeowners association had theirs, and the union theirs. So everything in the Los Angeles city charter was a compromise. Mm. But so is that true, I realize, of the U.S. Constitution, that it was all a compromise. It was a wonderful experience, and for me, a development of many skills to sort of shepherd that process of trying to take 15 very strong-willed elected officials and get us to produce a document that then went before the voters in June of 1999 and was approved. Yeah. So it was one of the best experiences, and it helped me in, in, in much else that I did. Yeah, was it enlightening to see how the sausage gets made and then go back to the scholarship and teaching? Yeah, well, it was. I was teaching while it was going on, and I was writing, so it was, it was not instead of. But yes, it was very much how the sausage was made. It was a very very intense process. It was intense from the beginning and it became more so all the way up until June of 1990. It was a two-year process. It's a tremendous tribute to my wife that we managed to stay married through that process, including <laughs> we had a, she had a baby in the middle of it. Yeah. And you've uh, traveled around the country a lot and you've practiced in lots of different courts mm -hmm. of appeals. How has that experience impacted you? I really love being a lawyer. And one of the great joys of 
being an academic is I don't need to practice law to earn a living. And the reason I say that is it means that mm-hmm. I can pick and choose the cases that I want to get involved in and I don't expect to and generally don't earn any money from them. I get paid my salary by the University of California at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm very conscious of outcomes and the kinds of cases I argue about so much depend on who are the judges and the panel. And so a great deal of arguing is trying to figure out what can I say that might appeal to these judges, often if we have a very different ideology than my own. And when you bring a case uh, or are litigating a case that does not succeed the way that you want it to come out, do you find that there are impacts of the case that move beyond the life of the litigation, uh, that it maybe gets talked about in the news or that the organizations involved kind of use it in other ways? Of course, especially at the Supreme Court level, but it's also at the Court of Appeals level, the decisions are precedents. And if they come out against me, they're going to be precedents for results that I dislike. Mm. That's part of the nature of litigation. And um, I've certainly lost much more than I've won, not just in the Supreme Court, but in the Court of Appeals. And part of being a civil rights lawyer, certainly at this point in history, is getting used to losing and how you deal with that aspect of it. And it's hard. How do you um, deal with that aspect of it? It's hard, and some cases are harder than others. I would say the hardest for me, for obvious reasons, I lost. I argued a couple of death penalty cases that I lost. The first case I argued in the Supreme Court was a man who had been sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years for stealing $153 with videotapes. Mm. And he received the sentence even though he had no violent crimes. You see the sentence, even though that prior to California's three strikes law, no one in the history of the country had ever received a life sentence for shoplifting. And I won in the Ninth Circuit, and I lost in the Supreme Court five to four. And that then looked like, I mean, at the time that he'd be in prison for another 40 years, he was ineligible for parole to the year 2047 when he'd be 96 years old. And it was very hard to have to communicate to him and his family, very hard to deal with the Huge dimensional loss. Now, subsequently, California changed the three strikes law so that he was eligible for release and did get released. Um, But I certainly couldn't know that then. It took 10 years for the additional change to happen. I don't have any words that can make losing a case you care about easier. But again, I go back to what I said. You just either give up or you go on and fight harder in the next one. That doesn't mean that there's still not pain and scars, I think, back to those. Um, I was saying in the classroom this morning, one of the hardest cases to me is I represented a man who I believe was truly innocent. And I filed a habeas corpus petition for him. And the judge sat on it for a year and a half, all the while I was in prison and came up to me and said, I voted against you. I didn't think I could give you relief under the Anti-Terrorism Effective Act, but I gave you a certificate of appealability. But I have real doubts as to whether he's guilty. Um, and then I went to the Court of Appeals and I lost two to one, and the Supreme Court denied cert. And there's something very difficult when you believe your client is innocent, and he then served another decade in prison and is now out. I think it's um, a very empowering way that you articulated that, to say that there really are two choices, and that when things maybe don't go your way, it's important to realize that there is the option to keep going, and there is the option to stop. I highly appreciate that. It looks like we're almost out of time here, but I was wondering if you have any final remarks to our law student listeners about either 
the moment that we're living in or becoming law practitioners in this era and how to approach that, I guess, as uh, current law students and soon-to-be lawyers. It almost sounds trite to talk about what a unique moment it is. This is only the third time since 1787 that a president has been impeached. That makes it close to unique. (laughs) Our country is more polarized, I think, it's been since the time of the Civil War. I think that technological and social changes are raising so many difficult legal issues. So I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be a lawyer. And the only advice I would give to anyone who's be a lawyer, and I have a, a son who's a lawyer and a son who's in law school, is to follow your passions. You know, and I would say this to all my kids, you know, find a job you love. And if the first job isn't that, then take another job. You work too hard to get here. And we spend too much of our lives at work to settle. Find something where you really love doing it and follow your passions. Great. Thank you so much for that. It was a pleasure talking to you, Erwin. My great pleasure. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and at ABA LSD on Twitter. Signing off, I'm Jake Villarreal. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.